0: Uh, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14, we'll be going over verses 1, uh, I think I gave them the wrong, 1 through 6, not 1 through 4, so we're not too far off. <laughs> <laughs> so John 14 verses 1 through 6, this is God's inspired in errant and infallible word, let not your hearts be troubled. believe in God, believe also in me. in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is the final hours of Jesus' life on earth, and we are in the upper room with his disciples As Jesus pours out the deep, deep love that he has for them by washing their feet, pointing to how he will serve them on the cross, breaking bread with them, showing them that his body will likewise be broken for them. These are precious gospel signs, signs that point to the love that Jesus has for them and the love Jesus has for his Father as he voluntarily offers himself into the hands of his betrayer so that. The work of redemption can be accomplished. And as we stand on this side of the cross and of the resurrection, keep in mind that the disciples are not there yet. And so there is much confusion. Uh, There are troubled hearts in in this upper room this night, not least of which is Jesus' own troubled heart. It is Jesus' soul that is troubled in a way his disciples cannot even relate to. John 12, 27, we read Jesus saying, Now is my soul troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 21, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It is Jesus' who is heading for the agony of everything that the cross holds for him. Betrayal, isolation, pain, denial, and ultimately forsakenness, eternal wrath. His whole earthly life has been directed to this hour. But this hour is but the culmination of a life of humiliation. His whole earthly life has been what our confession states is a Uh, a state of humiliation, born in a low condition for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, taking upon himself the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus just doesn't die for you. He lived for you and lives for you still. But here, in the upper room, on this night of nights, as your Lord faces the agony of the cross and culmination of that a state of humiliation, it is your Lord's soul that is troubled. How appropriate it would have been if the disciples would have gathered around Jesus and offered him emotional and spiritual support. But that's not what happens, is it? Here, Jesus, in the midst of his torment of soul, he shows that he never receives but continues to only give because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And here Jesus is giving all of himself. Yes, we now saw in verse 1 that his disciples are troubled. And Jesus had said some things this evening that has greatly troubled them and disturbed them. He's talking about betrayal. He's talking about denial. And he's talked about his departure. And the disciples are troubled about this. Jesus is troubled. His disciples are troubled. It's the same verb. But notice, notice this. In the midst of Jesus' agony and troubled spirit, when of all times it would have been appropriate for the disciples to offer him some kind of support, it is Jesus who is the one who continues to give. It is Jesus who continues to comfort. It is Jesus who continues to instruct. The disciples are troubled, but not for the same reasons that Jesus is troubled. The disciples will not face eternal wrath on a cross. But they are troubled because of the things Jesus has been speaking about. Take, for example, the words written in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. John doesn't record these words, but they were spoken to Peter in the upper room, the same room, when predicting Peter's denial. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. These are disturbing, threatening words. But at the same time, notice the repetition of endearment here. Simon, Simon, Jesus loves Peter. Peter's dear to Jesus because he's a sheep of Christ. And so after telling him of the disturbing demand of Satan, Jesus follows it up with emphasizing his mediatorship for Peter. He says in verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus assures Peter that because he has prayed for him, Peter's faith will not fail, and he will indeed turn again and strengthen his brothers. Jesus loves his sheep. They are confused, they are uncertain of what exactly it is that Jesus is talking about. They feel threatened by his references to his departure and their inability to follow him. And yet, Christ loves them with that deep, deep covenantal love. He shares the love that he has had in eternity between the Father and the Spirit, and he loves his own with that divine love. And so, throughout the evening, they have increased in clarity, at least in some respect, that this will be a night like no other and that they are headed towards a separation This separation that jesus speaks of disturbs their feelings of love for him this separation does not fit the image that they have formed of their following him it's a direct challenge of their faith in him he just announced that peter will deny him three times this night before the rooster crows and if peter's faith is to collapse to the point of denying his master What in the world will happen to the other disciples? And so they are so very troubled. As you can imagine, they are distraught, facing profound shame, facing severe disillusionment and fear. And Jesus, the one who is troubled in his soul, he turns to give them comfort. He doesn't receive, he gives. And he puts his finger right on the pulse of the anxiety. He's so pastoral here. He responds to both their issues, the coming separation and their faith. One commentator writes, Any other man, even a man of superior strength of mind and kindliness of heart, placed so far as he could be placed in our Lord's circumstances, would have had his mind thrown into such a state of uncontrollable agitation, and most certainly would have been too entirely occupied with his own sufferings and anxieties to have any power or disposition to enter into and soothe the sorrows of others. But though completely aware of all that awaited him, though feeling the weight of the awful load laid upon him, though tasting the bitter cup which he must drain, he not only retained full self-possession, but took as deep an interest in the fears and sorrows of the apostles as he himself had not been a sufferer. Instead of being occupied with what lay before himself, he spent the time in comforting his disciples. He loved them until the end. That's the glory of your Lord, brothers and sisters. That's the deep, deep love of Jesus that we sing about earlier. The words he speaks to them are are so precious, so comforting, so loving, so pastoral. Christians throughout the centuries have often turned to these words of Christ when they were facing trouble of their own and it's appropriate to do so there are many things in this world which trouble our hearts on a daily basis it's easy to be troubled in the wilderness and that's why we need to hear the gospel daily we need to return time and time again to God's word to be reminded of who God is and to be assured of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. How appropriate are these words of Jesus? How often have they been cited at Christian funerals or engraved upon tombstones? Well, as appropriate as they are to be spoken at funerals, they were first spoken to 11 disciples who, under substantial emotional pressure, finding themselves on the darkest of all nights, with the darkness threatening to engulf them as it did Judas on the brink of catastrophic failure a night where one of them is going to betray the Lord and another will deny the Lord and the departure of the Lord Jesus just got done saying it two, two times In 1333 little children yet a little while I am with you you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews so now I also say to you where I am going you cannot come John 13, 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So the disciples are troubled. Troubled about their own faith and the departure of their Lord. Two good reasons to be troubled about. They are sad because of Jesus' impending departure They are ashamed because of their own demonstrated selfishness and pride. They are perplexed because one of them will betray Jesus and another one will deny him. They were perhaps wavering in their faith, thinking, how can the one who is about to be betrayed be the Messiah? And all at the same time, they love him. And Jesus turns to them, and he gently addresses both issues. Look with me at verse 1 let not your hearts be troubled Jesus' statement is first of all a a pastoral word of comfort Jesus looking after his sheep speaks words of comfort to them seeking to calm the inner turmoil of their soul feelings that were not foreign to Jesus himself the agonized shepherd facing the cross comforting his sheep let not your hearts be troubled was there ever a kinder shepherd so gentle, so sweet. Let not your hearts be troubled. And in the same breath, he appeals to them to continue to believe in him. He doesn't just say, hey, don't worry, and walk away. He fortifies his statement with solid ground. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is how the disciples are to calm their troubled hearts in continuing present active reality. Continue to trust. Continue to believe in God. Trust in God. Don't be troubled. Trust Jesus. Trust God. In trusting Jesus, trust God. Remember Jesus' words in John 12, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Trusting Jesus for who... He really is, and trusting God are included in each other. It's what will keep our hearts from being troubled. Faith in Jesus. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's a a command, it's an imperative. Keep on believing in God. The world may appear to have gone mad, but the disciples must continue to believe in God as the sovereign Lord of creation. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in me. And this next section will, be, will prove to be difficult for them this very night, won't it? This night when Jesus is betrayed, dragged away to the courts, condemned by the rulers of this world, nailed to a cross, mocked by onlookers, buried in a tomb. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in Jesus. The Son linked with the Father as the supreme object of faith. That's the point. It's faith in Jesus that calms our troubled hearts. It's faith in Jesus that gives peace, that gives comfort. The only remedy for a troubled heart is the assurance that Jesus is and remains the Savior, even though he suffers and he dies. Keep trusting God. This is God's plan of redemption. Keep on trusting Jesus. He is the agent by which God accomplishes that plan of redemption. He had told them at the Last Supper that he was going away. He had told them that they can't come with him now. He had said that one of them was going to betray him. He had said to Peter that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat and that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. And this is ample reason to be troubled, as we said before. And if you ignore the chapter break and go from 13.38 to fourteen one. you have absolutely stunning words, right? Don't be troubled. Instead of being troubled, trust me. Trust God. And he spends the next nine verses to support that imperative to not be troubled. Why should we trust you in this terrible situation, Jesus? Why should we not be troubled? If you've ever asked that question, here's your answer. Believe God, believe also in me. the words allude I think to exodus fourteen verse thirty one they allude to the role of Moses and an object of faith as God's mediatorial agent alongside God. remember the Israelites backed up against the sea they see Pharaoh's chariots coming to kill them and we read in exodus fourteen ten through fourteen When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so the, the angel of the Lord moves behind the people, between the army of Egypt and the people of Israel. The pillar of cloud moves behind them there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night and moses stretches out his hand over the sea and the lord drives the sea back with a strong east wind and all night and divides the sea and the people of israel walk through on dry ground with the sea being walls of water on their right and their left and when they are safely on the other side of the shore the armies begin to follow and moses stretches out his hand over the sea again and the water's return to their place, and come crashing down on Pharaoh's chariots. And we read in verses 30 and 31, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When the Israelites saw how God destroyed the Egyptians, They feared the Lord, and they believed in both the Lord and his servant, Moses. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. Believe in God. Believe also in his servant, Jesus. Believe also in me, the greater Moses, God's mediatorial agent. You may feel like you are about to be backed up against a sea, disciples, but I'm about to do a work greater than Moses. Believe in God, believe also in me. If Jesus invariably speaks the words of God and performs acts of God, remember John five nineteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. If Jesus speaks the word of God and performs the acts of God, should he not be trusted like God. If he tells them to not let their hearts be troubled, it is because he has ample and justifiable reason to do so. So keep trusting God, keep trusting his servant, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate son. Jesus is going to the father and this is the guarantee of the disciples future. His departure is for their advantage. And so he points them to heaven, to their heavenly home. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is departing not to sever his relationship with him, but to secure it forever. And so he speaks these words, pointing us to our eternal home. Look with me at verses 1-4. through four. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. It's true. He's departing. He is going away. But he's going away to prepare a place for them. And he will come back. And he will get them so that they may be where he is. What more could they ask for? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the son of that household. He is not setting out to an unfamiliar destination. He's not going to the place He's going to the place that is his home. He is going to the house of his father. He is the son of that household. The son is expected at the place where he was at home, and also those he has made his own. In his father's house are many rooms. And he goes to prepare a place for them. His father's house is heaven. Psalm 33, 13, and 14. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Isaiah 63, 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord in the highest heavens. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house, the father's house, was filled with smoke. That house that was filled with smoke in Isaiah's vision, that's the father's house. It is the archetype, the original temple, the original true temple and the God of heaven fills that heavenly temple with his glory seen in the images of his robe and smoke. He fills this heavenly temple with his glory. It's the glory of the immutable self-contained Sabbath resting creator King, the living and true triune God. His father's house is heaven. It's not an earthly temple. It's not a temple made with hands. It's the heavenly temple. It's the true temple, the true house of God. Heaven, the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God where he sits enthroned among the cherubim in Sabbath rest. And in heaven there are many rooms, many abiding places, many dwelling places, a place to stay, a place to remain. It's not a temporary place. It's an abiding place. He won't run out of space. This is God's house, not his hotel. God's children live with him in his house. They dwell in heaven in Sabbath rest. It's so spacious. He never runs out of room. There is a room designed for each of the eleven. Even Peter, the denier, there is a room for you and for me in the Father's house. Point is not the lavishness of each room but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join the son in the household of the father this is where Jesus is going this is where they belong right do you remember the Old Testament accounts in uh, Exodus 40 when the the glory of the Lord falls upon the tabernacle and not even Moses can enter into it. Do you remember that? Do you remember in in Solomon's day after the temple was uh, built? Same thing happened. The glory filled the temple and not even the priests were able to stay in there. Brothers and sisters, that's where you belong. That's your home. That's where Jesus abides. This is where Jesus is going. Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for you. What exactly does that mean? Is God's house in disrepair? Is it like our houses and needs to be straightened up? Is it dusty? Is Jesus busy in heaven using his carpentry skills that he learned as a child, making heaven ready for us? No, that's not what he's saying. The words presuppose that the place exists before Jesus even gets there. So how is it that he prepares? How does he prepare it? Well, he prepares it by the going itself. Via the cross. Resurrection and ascension. That is what prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. It is his going that makes heaven ready for us. His death and resurrection and ascension that makes heaven ready for us for us it is his going that prepares heaven for you and for me he's pointing the disciples he's pointing us to his death and resurrection not as something that separates him from us but as something that secures our relationship with him forever secures our eternal home there in the holy holies of heaven there are many rooms many abiding places if it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus reassures them, reminding them that he himself has been in this heavenly house as the eternal son. If in my father's house there were not plenty of rooms for all of God's elect, his children, I certainly would have known all about it and would have told you so. For by means of my humiliation and exaltation, I prepare a place for you. This is my mission. That's what Jesus is saying, without Jesus' death, there would be no place for us. Without Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit, we would not be made ready for this heavenly place. And so he continues in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Brothers and sisters, if, if Jesus, by his cross and resurrection and ascension, prepares a place for us, if it takes such work to do, all to prepare a place for his own, it is an inconceivable that he then wouldn't come again and take you to himself. Notice his words here I come again and will take you to myself. You see the focus there? The focus is not on place. He doesn't say, I will come again and take you to that place. He says something far more comforting because heaven isn't heaven unless Jesus is there. He says, I will take you to myself. He's going to take you to be face-to-face with him. So wonderful is the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. He's not satisfied with the idea of merely bringing you to heaven he takes you to Himself. He takes you into His own embrace. One pastor asks the question, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, with all the food you ever liked, with all the leisure activities you have ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Brothers and sisters, you are being prepared for a heaven where Christ himself, not his gifts, Christ himself will be the supreme pleasure and object of your delight. It is in a Christ-filled heaven that you will perfectly fulfill your chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where he is going. To his father's house, there is... Many abiding places. He prepares heaven for us by preparing us for heaven. He goes to the cross. He's resurrected in power. He ascends to the Father's right hand in his Father's house, the heavenly holy of holies. And we know the way to the Father's house because we know him. Look with me at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas speaking for all the disciples here insists that they in fact do not know where Jesus is going and even less do they know the way they have no idea what this going away is all about if it means the end of their following Jesus as the Christ and the son of God and so Jesus being the good shepherd that he is he explains the way and he does so by giving uh, the second to last I am statement in John he's given five so far and he is the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And now, verse 6. This is the answer to Thomas's question. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me briefly summarize this exclusivism of the Son. This would be perfect for a three-point sermon. Uh, it's It's the core statement of the gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and the life of God. He is the truth because what he embodies is the supreme revelation of God. He himself exegetes, or narrates god he only does and says exclusively what the father tells him to do or say he is god himself he is god's self-disclosure he is the word made flesh and he is the life the one who has life in himself he is the resurrection and the life john wrote about it in john in chapter one In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Only Jesus, only because Jesus is the truth and the life, can Jesus be the way for others to come to God, the way for disciples to attain the abiding place of heaven where they will have face-to-face communion and fellowship with their creator. You see, brothers, And sisters, Jesus doesn't just pave a path. Jesus just doesn't blaze a trail for you to follow. He doesn't just make a way and command you to take the way that he himself has taken. No. Rather, he is the way. This Jesus so mediates God's truth and God's life that he is the very way to God. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. If you want to see the world get angry, tell them that. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So let me end on this this evening. Let me summarize for you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, brothers and sisters, because there is an abiding place for you in the Father's house. Jesus has prepared that way for you by going to the cross, rising from the dead three days later, and ascending to his Father's house, 40 days after his resurrection. He himself is the way. He will bring you to himself. He is your dwelling place in heaven. He has promised immutably. That means it cannot change. He's promised immutably to come and take you to himself, which he has partially done by sending his spirit on Pentecost. You are united to him by the spirit today. And so you dwell with him today and you will dwell with him consummatively on the last day when he raises you up in glory and you are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of god to all eternity so do not let your hearts be troubled look to the ascended christ in heaven he is your anchor behind the veil trust in him keep on believing in god keep on believing in jesus the Son linked with the Father as the supreme object of faith, and you will be like those the psalmist writes of in Psalm 125, who abide forever in the presence of the living God. We read, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. That is yours today in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for our union with him by your spirit that we today dwell in that heavenly place spiritually lord we have fellowship with our our savior spiritually and he will come again and take us to be where he is in both resurrected bodies and perfectly made righteous spirits we thank you lord for the gospel we thank you lord that you have made us in your image and that our chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever in christ Continue to remind us, Lord, of our heavenly uh, citizenship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.